You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Lanyap Podcast, Doug and Greg Stokes. It is Friday, January 12th, heading into a long weekend and heading to NFL playoffs. Uh, I want to start with something uh, I read actually this morning that I found uh, really insightful. And it aligns with what we've been talking with clients about recently in that uh, really the disciplined investor is paid off in the long run, that uh, returns come in waves. And if you're trying to uh, time returns or uh, get skittish during during uh, negative news that you really miss out because um, it's not like the performance of the S&P 500 is very consistent. It happens, uh, positive performance happens really rapidly. And so you have to be an investor and invested in order to experience that. Um, this is the evidence of that. And it's an article written by Larry Swedrobe uh, and distributed through Morningstar says the historical evidence demonstrates that this is the norm. For example, over the 97-year period from 1927 through 2023, the S&P 500 returned 10.3% annualized. If we were to remove the returns of the highest returning 97 months, what would you guess the return of the remaining 1,067 months was? I believe that most investors would be shocked to learn that the answer is virtually zero. The remaining 1,067 months provided an average annualized return of just 0.01%. The best 97 months, just 8.3% of months, provided an average annual return of 10.4%, more than 100% of the annualized return for the full period. The The lesson for investors is that the ability to avoid the temptation to chase recent performance is a necessary ingredient for investment success. So unreal. Yeah. So by the time you get invested, so if you're somebody that is saying, I'm going to wait for, uh, the, you know, the clouds to clear before I <laughs> invest, well, that means you're investing after the returns, those, those high levels of returns. If you, if you get out and you're going to wait before the storms to clear, then you're getting out before those in high, high levels of investment returns. So you have to, uh, deal with volatility in order to experience the the average annual return that Larry Swedra references here since over the last hundred years. Um, yeah, and I the think- other difficult thing about that, Doug, is that the best months usually come after the worst months as well, too. Yeah, volatility so, is is very much uh, centered around uh, volatility. That's for sure. Right. So to the extent that you, that, and we hear this all the time from people and less so now because the markets are higher essentially, but people during times of strife do not want to be buying because they want to, they want to wait basically for there to be some more certainty or whatever. But once there's certainty that then necessarily the markets are higher. And so people implicitly saying that they're going to wait until things chill out or whatever in the markets are essentially saying that they want to wait until to pay for higher prices in stocks. Yeah, we heard you say this the other day, which I think is absolutely right. It's the 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 returns that you receive and the volatility that you get in in equities is the price of admission. That's that's exactly. And I stole that from Morgan Housel for sure. So I didn't come up with that, but that's the price of admission for the higher rates of return in stocks. This is um the this is something posted by Charlie Bolello. Annualized volatility since 1928. 
19.6% for stocks, 7.7% for bonds, 3% for cash, and then annualized returns since 1928, close to 10% for stocks, 4.6% for bonds, and 3% for cash. So you have to deal, and basically you deal with with more than twice the amount of volatility in stocks to get a, a, a double return over that long period of time. Um, versus bonds and cash, basically, but it's it certainly it it, it uh, reinforces that point that that's the price of admission to get those higher rates of return. And when we run these cash flow analyses for people over thirty years or whatever, they're they're we work with people that are approaching retirement, and we'll say, okay, well, you your expected life expect your life expectancy as a sixty year old or whatever is thirty five years, and we show the difference between a one and a two percent return over those periods of time. And the, the, the end number is huge, but with a 1% or a 2% rate of return. But if you're talking about a 5% differential between stocks and bonds over this period of time, the, the returns are uh, enormous, essentially, the differential returns. Um, so dealing with volatility is a natural part of investing in stocks, but you get rewarded. And that is certainly the price of admission for getting those higher rates of return. That's it. Um Turning to just current events this week uh, was we received some conflicting inflation data. I want to get your comments on this, but we had headline CPI uh, for December come in at 3.4% annualized. And then we had the producer's price index PPI come in at, I think it was a 0.1% um, uh, month over month, less than about 2% annualized. And um, so we have on one side, uh, the fear of uh, inflation reigniting with headline CPI. And on the other side, we have the fear of uh, slowdown in really in production and manufacturing. What is uh, what are the tea leaves saying on on uh, inflation? So um, I, the best judge of any news is what the market is actually doing as a result of that news. Um, because this, we've talked about this in the past, but you have all these participants in the stock and bond market and they trade upon all available information. This latest information that you know, PPI producers price index basically what goes into the inputs of manufacturers was the lowest annual print since 2021. And bond yields are way down. Like <clears throat> to the 10 year treasury, that opened up uh, over 4% and now is in the 3.9% range. So that's fallen significantly. The uh, sh- On the shorter end of the spectrum, the two-year treasury is also down significantly, and the two-year and the 30-year treasury are uninverting. So that we've had an inversion of yields, which is usually a recessionary signal. There's the, um, the yield curve is basically normalizing as a result of, of this data. Yeah, so this, that's, is, that's, this, this is a, a quote, the Fed funds minus two-year treasury yields is currently 1.2%. That's where the spread was in December 2000. In all likelihood, the Fed is about to cut a lot. Um, that was, uh, who said that? Connor Sen, who's at uh, Bloomberg. Basically, what that means is that the Fed rate, which is the overnight rate, and the two-year rate, was, which is the what the market expects the Fed to do two years from now, uh, is that there's a 1.2% difference between those numbers, which would represent... 1.2% of Fed funds cuts over the next two years, which would be a significant cut over that time frame. So, uh, yeah, that's the market telling you that cuts are coming. Now, that could change in a month, but that's current state of affairs. 
Yeah. So essentially what happened was this morning, the markets, and so we just talked about the bond market yields are down, essentially meaning the markets, the bond markets anticipating cuts. The stock market opened up today and then has subsequently come off a little bit because some Fed speaker said that they may not cut in March or whatever. But the market's basically digesting the fact that there's going to be cuts um, to the, uh, the Fed funds rate. And that's bullish for stocks, basically, because that means that there's we're done with this sort of uh, restrictive economic uh, policy and then uh, turning the page into a, a more uh, accommodative Fed and economic cycle that potentially could could result in growth in the economy and then subsequently to stockholders and uh, to companies and then the, and the, comp- the people that own stocks in those particular companies. So I see that as a um, I see that all of this as it stands right now is bullish, but anything can happen. And what, what we haven't, we've, we've been expecting for the, for the preceding two years is, is a recession basically. And that hasn't come to fruition, but that may actually come to fruition as a result. And, and that's what prognosticators are saying, um, at large institutions like Bloomberg. I listened to a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Bloomberg's chief economist is expecting, was expecting a recession to occur at the end of last year and sometime this year. And that may be with the Brian Westbury, who's a very famous economist from First Trust. He's calling for a recession this year. Um, But they're all uh, really the 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 narrative is I think there's been a mass expectation of recession. The question is whether it's going to be soft landing or hard landing. Right. And so um, the and the the reason the market rallied last year is because and all that all that really means is, is it a deep recession or a shallow recession? Uh, and the mar- the rally from the markets last year was essentially uh, the expectation of a soft landing or a shallow recession if we have one. So we'll see. Right, we'll see. And and like whether or not we're going to be in a recession or a technical recession or whatever, it, it a lot of times if you look at history, the markets actually go up and during a recession. So it's I think something like thirty or forty percent of the time. It's ironic, but or not ironic, but counterintuitive that the stocks can go up during a recession. Um, and also it's actually who, who actually decides whether or not we have a recession or not. I think, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago or, or longer, but the government, we had a technical recession based upon whatever definition it was. And then the, yeah, the, was the summer of 21, time, the summer of 22, no, summer of 22. <laughs> summer of 22. Yeah. Right. They changed the definition of a recession or something like that. I think a recession's like technical definition is to, uh, consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth or something like that. And then they changed it to like three consecutive quarters or something like that. So we avoided a recession. So who knows what's actually going to happen or not, but the things the, what the fed has been trying to accomplish, which is slow down inflation is coming. Um, it, it's it, it, where the data bears out that that's what's happening uh, in, on the ground. And you can see it just by virtue of day-to-day items like, for example, gasoline is at the lowest price that it's been in been at since for like two or three years or something like that. It's like three dollars a gallon for gas. Speaking of Doug, do you see the um, the news about Hertz related to their Tesla stock? Uh, no, what's going on? So Hertz was an early adopter in terms of buying Teslas. So Hertz, the rental car company, for um, their customers to be able to rent a, a Tesla or whatever. But they they the news came out this past week that they're divesting a third of their electric vehicle stock because there's not as much consumer de- demand for it. I mean, it's just complicated. I, I also saw that the Teslas are, have the highest um, probability of accidents or something like that 
relative to any car out there. It's just a complicated, it's once you get used to driving them, they're kind of fun to drive, et cetera, but it's a complicated car to drive. And people like that are renting cars, for example, are not wanting to deal with the, the uh, difficulties associated with finding a charger and all that kind of stuff. And so Hertz just got rid of a third of their Teslas. Um, so it's pretty interesting to see that gasoline prices are down. You don't have to, if you're, if you're taking your family on a, on a road trip or whatever, you don't have to worry about, first of all, it's pretty cheap now to fill up your gas tank. And you also don't have to worry about finding plug-in stations or whatever along the way. Um, if you're buying, uh, have an internal combustion engine versus an external combustion engine. Yeah, I think, um, I think the biggest move, uh, as it relates to inflation and expectations in the future over the last a uh, few days has been just the bond market's reaction, as you as you said. Um, you know, are, are we having higher inflation or lower inflation? Uh, look where the expectation of rate cuts are going, and look at what the bond market is doing, and that'll really tell you the answer. And with the bond with bond yields dropping, uh, with the Fed funds rate minus the two year Treasury uh, spread widening pretty dramatically, uh, the market is saying that inflation's essentially over and rate cuts are coming. Uh, and then, you know, the, the economists are saying if rate cuts don't happen soon enough, that, uh, in a recession could be, uh, you know, worse than expected if the fed doesn't do anything short term. So that's really the, the fear in the marketplace right now. There's always something to worry about. Um, and then the, really the thing that gets you is what the unknown is that, that sort of surprise black swan event, but the at least known fear right now is, uh, rates staying too high. And that curbs investment, uh, and then that curbs economic growth to the point where uh, recession becomes uh, broader and deeper than it needed to be. Uh, yeah. So shifting gears, I, I want to get your thoughts. I, I saw somebody posted this hypothetical, and, I, and I'm not a securities lawyer. I'm a lawyer technically, but I'm not a securities lawyer. But I want to get your thoughts about this. So I'm sure you saw this Alaska Airlines uh, Boeing issue that occurred this past week. And there's actually also, and this is, an, I'm going to, I'm going to throw in a tidbit here in a second, but so essentially what happened for the, for those of you who didn't see Alaska airlines, uh, flight from, from Portland or whatever was, uh, the, one of the emergency exit doors blew off on blowing 737 max. Um, and fortunately nobody uh, died or anything like that, but there's a couple of phones that were sucked out of the, the plane and they actually found them, which is kind of crazy. And they were, were like intact. Um, but secondly, before I go into this detail, the year, the week before there was all, an, another plane in Japan that caught on fire and everyone was able to, it was like three or 400 people or something like that were able to vacate the plane without getting harmed or anything like that. And the thing was completely burnt in 18 minutes. Yeah. I need to start so, paying attention to those flight attendant, uh, announcements as you're, um, you know, uh, disembarking from the gate. Um, <laughs> Right, right, exactly. But I mean, planes are so safe. And this is some, this is from Larry Hamtill. To, he said, this is a, a, a quote. Uh, I, I read a statistic in the Wall Street Journal today that I could scarcely believe, which is that eight of the last 30 major airplane crashes in the last three decades were due to pilot suicide. So essentially, there's only been 22 um, involuntary crashes or whatever of major airlines in the last three decades. Um, which is unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's the, the commercial airline aviation industry is so super safe, but getting back to the Boeing issue that somebody posted this hypothetical and I wanted to get your thoughts. If you were sitting on that plane and you decided you all of us, you, you before everybody else knew that 
the Boeing the Boeing stock was probably going to crash. Would that qualify as insider trading if you went ahead and started to like short Boeing stock or whatever? And there's a, there's an actual definition and elements associated with the with what what qualifies as insider trading. But I can only imagine if there was anybody on that plane that was thinking <laughs> going through that process or probably was just grateful to have to be like you know like in a position where they were okay. Uh, I, I mean, I, I doubt there was anybody that actually had that sort of thought go through their head during that moment, but I would imagine that that would not qualify. It's, um, it's technically public information. It's, uh, it's material public information. It's, it's non-public, uh, not provided by an insider. And so I would say that that short would be good. And imagine the, imagine the uh, SEC coming after you uh, for being a passenger on the uh, Alaska Air <laughs> Uh, profiting off of uh, known information at the time. I would imagine that you're probably good on that one. All right. So there, here's the elements of uh, uh, the defendant actually received the information, of course. The information was material. The information was non-public. The information directly influenced the de- defendant's trade. So based upon that, it sounds like that that would qualify as insider trading, but I don't know. Right? <laughs> to the extent that the SEC would go after it or whatever is pretty crazy. But anyway, it's, uh, I just thought that was an interesting hypothetical um, and yeah, before you decide to make any of those trades, think, think to yourself, there may be some, some, uh, legal consequences, uh, but hopefully you're never in that position. Um, shifting gears again. Um, I thought this was a, 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 a quite a hilarious, uh, input or whatever, uh, from a, some, this individual on Twitter. Um, this is, this is after it says, and I, I open quotes after Bill Gates became friends with Warren Buffett. He began to diversify his portfolio and sold Microsoft shares. Bill Gates' Bill Gates' fortune today is one hundred thirty-eight billion dollars. If he hadn't diversified, it would be one point three three trillion dollars. Be careful with diversification and friends who recommend it. Yeah, my my response to that is: if you've already won the game, uh, then there's no point. What's the difference between one hundred thirty-eight billion dollars and one point three trillion dollars? Uh, right. Is that going to, is what is he going to eat? Like, like the most exotic, more exotic caviar or whatever. If yeah. he has another, he can't trillion there's dollars. No, there's no, unless you're, unless you're a member of the Vanderbilt family, there's no possible way to spend all of that money. Either one. Right. I, I, I honestly think, I wonder, I wonder at what, at what level it doesn't really even matter anymore. Um, I guess $500 million. You're probably living the exact same lifestyle as these guys at, you know, a, you know, $130 billion or whatever. By the way, I saw that, uh, Mark Zuckerberg posted that he's raising cattle on his uh, ranch in uh, Kauai, and which is an island off of Hawaii, and he's feeding his cattle macadamia nuts and beer, uh, beer every day. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I don't know what that's. That's I guess that's what what you have. Not what else do you do? What else do you occupy your time with? Um, besides that kind of stuff, if you're like that wealthy, he's all you know. He's well, I mean, you would imagine if you're the CEO of Facebook that you've got um, you got a lot going on, but but yeah, I mean, I guess that's uh, you know a, a little uh, pet uh, project for him, and I think he's doing it with his kids or something like that. Delicious, but, delicious pet project. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think uh, I would say that uh, in in retrospect, uh, Buffett was still right to make the recommendation to to uh gates uh, and i think uh, even right, though it's pragmatism yeah that's right and i think even though that uh yeah for example like microsoft went on to do 10x what he did by diversifying um you know in 
in hindsight, yeah, Microsoft is not going to go bankrupt. I mean, it's not the next Motorola or Nokia or whatever. But, yeah, but uh, it was for a while there. It was just kind of floundering. I mean, that's one we talked about this before, but like from 20, 2000 to 2014 or whatever, it was flat essentially. And yeah, but their earnings, like, were, their earnings quadrupled or something like that. It's the problem right. that it was trading at 100 times earnings or more. Uh, in the tech bubble and it had there was a, a digestion period for the next decade plus um, so it's not like a company that was going through ne- a negative earnings period and then they got so fortunate with they they switched to a subscription model and then they got so fortunate with cloud and they, and they pivoted right. with, to cloud i think uh, amazon same same fortune a uh, company that was really not profitable very low margin e-commerce business that then uh you know fell into the cloud uh uh, cloud market that really just boosted uh, earnings in AWS and Azure are now just behemoths. Right, exactly. So um, playoff football is this weekend, and I saw this interesting tidbit. Dolphins, Chiefs to play in frigid conditions in Kansas City. Kansas City forecast is negative 4 degrees, real feel of negative 27, wind gusts near 30 miles per hour, which is one, gonna, potentially one of the coldest games on record. And this is the coldest NFL games on record. Negative 13 degrees in Lambeau Field in 1967 with a uh, 48 below with the wind chill. Negative 48 below with wind chill. Or I guess negative 48 is redundant. But negative 9 in uh, 1982 in Cincinnati. Negative 6 in Minneapolis. Um, so it's going to be freezing. I'm sure that's going to affect the outcome of the game because I'm sure, I mean, it, I don't know how. Yeah, Tua to, to, uh, Tagovailoa is uh, from Hawaii. They play in Miami. <laughs> Uh, I, <laughs> that's gonna be rough yeah i don't i don't imagine that he has a whole lot of experience with uh with that sort of weather right exactly and their whole game is about speed and everything yeah. um with uh who's that guy reek he's awesome he tyreek tyreek hill yeah he's he's awesome um so that'll be interesting a couple of other uh tidbits that i want to add in here um that I, I thought were interesting the op- uh, costco opened its uh first store in southern china and uh, it drew massive crowds with customers queuing for hours, um, even though there's you know a slowdown in China. So there's a, people want to have these sort of modern amenities that that are uh, we take for granted in the United States. But um, I thought that was quite interesting. You've got in this in in here, Doug, about a, a quote for, uh, from Eddie Elfenbein, and this is really a, a story that's going to be interesting, not only in the auto auto realm space, but also in the, in auto, uh, in the just overall insurance space. But the, the, according to Elfin Bean, insurance costs are fueling inflation like crazy on automobiles. And then obviously anyone who's living in, uh, a area prone to natural disasters like ourselves in New Orleans, we're paying ridiculous amounts in property taxes. And my well, that, property that, tax, in my opinion, that should, insurance, but yeah, yeah but that, that should moderate. Well. That should moderate, in my opinion, just simply because the cost of uh, inputs for whether it was housing or for cars. I mean, the price of of a vehicle went up astronom- astronomically during COVID and the supply shock that we had. Uh, materials for houses, appliances, etc. Of course, insurance is going to increase uh, specifically for auto if uh, the price of all these cars are going through the roof. And then, uh, you know, obviously with, uh, you know, places like uh, Louisiana, Gulf Coast and Florida, with the amount of natural disasters we've had over the last few years, plus the cost of materials increasing, the cost of labor, um, you know, insurance is going to be, uh, you know, big 
uh, a big increase. And we're seeing that, um, you know, we're feeling the pain here locally with, uh, you know, homeowners insurance going up like crazy. But yeah, I think that that should moderate over time as uh, hopefully we don't knock on wood, get any uh, major storms here for the next several years, but also as uh, just the, the uh, labor costs and materials costs come down. Right. I, I agree. And I hope that's the case because that's going to, I think otherwise, when we were talking with one of our clients who was trying to recruit uh, employees to come to New Orleans, but the, the New Orleans specifically, the public school uh, system here is doesn't offer a whole lot of options. So a lot of people send their children to private schools, which are expensive. And then you've got to deal with the, the cost of insurance. I think we have one of the highest automobile costs of insurance in the country, along with property and homeowners insurance is really high. So it's really, even though it's on on its face is a relative as an inexpensive city to live and it's actually quite expensive when you add in those sort of um intangible costs and that you could say the same thing about um uh, other cities as well too obviously but certainly uh, significant here yeah and i would say that just to come back to that inflation story that we we're talking about earlier just because uh it's a short-term increase in insurance uh doesn't really translate to a uh, systemic or secular wave of inflation that's coming through. I think same thing happened with um, the you know, container uh, you know, freight prices that were going way up during COVID that are now experiencing a, um, a resurgence because of the uh, issues in the Red Sea and uh, attacks by the Houthi rebels on container ships in the Red Sea. And so that all over time will moderate. And uh, it's not something that is ingrained into the system that is going to force the Federal Reserve to k- keep rates high to push down. You can't really do it. No matter where interest rates are, it's not really going to do anything about uh, a, you know, a war in uh, Yemen. So Right. And, and just on that point, I mean, Europe just does, cannot seem to catch a break. And we talked about this last week. That they've got major demographic issues like that they're – 25 to 65 population is going to go down by like 20% or something like that over the next 20 or 30 years. And then they've had this war um, with Ukraine and Russia that's right next door to them. And then they're having to deal with the, the uh, Suez Canal um, and Red Sea is the primary, uh, one of the primary ways that they get supplied from Asia. So it's just been, it, they just seem, cannot seem to catch a break. Um, and it, and I guess that is like, is by virtue of, our geographic location. We're just so fortunate to have two friendly neighbors and two, two huge um, bodies of water separating us from um, the rest of the world. Um, and we haven't had to experience a lot of that stuff, but I can, you can only see the, the writing on the wall for them. Um, and it's really sort of an unfortunate geographic location. Yep. All right. We're going to wrap it up. We're close to 30 minutes uh, for this week. We hope everyone has uh, a nice long and extended weekend and we'll be back next week. Uh, with more Lanyap, give us a five-star review. Tell us about your friends and uh, give us a comment on the Apple iTunes or Spotify page. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.
The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.